Broadcasting from the historic Habern Building in downtown Louisville, it's time for Single Payer Radio, a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, and we're a longstanding community partner with Forward Radio WFMP 106.5. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. The views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the speakers and not the station. Forward Radio is an all-volunteer community radio station, and we're a Pacifica affiliate. Consider joining our independent media movement. Go to forwardradio.org. We'd love to hear your ideas for a show and consider becoming a sustainer to support the station. Now I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Mike Flynn and Dr. Eugene Shively. Uh, thanks, Mark. Um, today's topic is uh, reproductive health, and there are literally tons of different issues <laughs> that we could discuss in the time we have. And we have a special guest uh, speaker today, um, Jeff Goldberg. Jeff, uh, a GYN oncologist. And for our listeners, a uh, GYN oncologist is a gynecological surgeon who m treats patients with uh, uh, tumors of the female genital tract. Uh, he received his uh, training uh, up at Northwestern in Chicago was in clinical practice of gynecologic oncology for many years at the uh, downtown medical center. Hospitals was the vice uh, uh, president for medical affairs and chief medical officer for uh, Kentucky One and is currently uh, runs a consulting service. So Jeff, uh, we greatly appreciate your willingness to come uh, come on and talk with us about all these issues and share some of your expertise. Um, as we've done with guest speakers in the past, we're gonna give you an opportunity to make some comments, uh, whatever you like. I, I would specifically ask you to talk a little bit about your, your interest in healthcare advocacy and, and how you got, got started in, in, in that aspect of it. And then the conversation will begin. So the floor is yours. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to join you today. Um, I, I still maintain a, a little bit of work in clinical practice, uh, but I spend much of my time now uh, working on patient safety and healthcare quality issues and advocating for public health in general and women's health in, in particular. Um, I've, I learned a long time ago that no matter how hard we work to make sure that somebody's getting very good health care when we're seeing the patient one-on-one -on -one in the exam room or in the operating room, there are so many factors outside of, of our sphere of influence in the hospital or the clinic um, that are still very important to how your patient's going to do in terms of their health outcome. And that can range from issues regarding nutrition, uh, access to health insurance and ability to, to pay for medications and other treatment, um, the neighborhood you live in, um, your, your access to uh, certain aspects of a healthy lifestyle, like, like exercise and access to, to good quality food, uh, and the list really goes on. Uh, so there's really no way that we as physicians can take 
the best care of our patients possible uh, unless we get involved in those issues that are outside the exam room. So I'm fortunate to be able to spend much of my time working on those issues these days. All right, that's great. I'm going to step back a little bit, Jeff. I, I neglected to do the usual disclaimer uh, that that the any views that I expressed during this program are my own personal views and do not uh, represent the views of either the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. I'm uh, a rural surgeon, been practicing in Camelsville, Kentucky since 1978. And my views do not represent the views of the Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville, nor the uh, Taylor Regional Hospital. Uh, Gene, I'm going to let you fire the first round across Jeff's bow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been interested in rural surgery, obviously, for obvious reasons. And uh, I just got back from the Southeast Surgical Congress uh, in Atlanta. Actually, I landed this afternoon, and one of the sessions was on rural surgery and how it the COVID endemic uh, affected rural surgery. And the lady who did that talk talked about the huge number of critical access hospitals and how that affected uh, uh, care in North Dakota, and with the emphasis on the lack of general surgery, because uh, for years we've known that if you don't have a general surgeon in a small hospital, you, you can't keep it open. And not only does the, the type of uh, general surgeon do uh, a general surgery, but uh, back in the, uh, the day, they uh, helped family doctors deliver babies and they did uh, C-sections. When I started off in Camelsville uh, in uh, 78 and through the 80s, uh, we had family doctors who were delivering babies. There was one guy who was delivering five or 600 babies a year, and the, and the general surgeons were helping out. And there was somebody delivering babies in all the surrounding counties. Now there are only two counties uh, that deliver babies. And uh, I just want your opinion is how that affects uh, maternal uh, and uh, fetal mortality. And uh, how, how should we address this problem? Right, great question. Um, it, it's a little hard to answer very specifically about its impact on, on fetal and, and neonatal and maternal mortality, because fortunately those events are still relatively rare, but there's a lot of information on how it's negatively impacting women's healthcare in general. Um, for example, um, if, if you look at the rising C-section rate in this country, um, one of the uh, reasons, uh, one of the, the most common reasons for having a C-section is having had a prior C-section. Um, it is possible and in fact encouraged to try to give birth vaginally after having previously had a C-section. Uh, in the vast majority of cases, it, it's both medically acceptable, in fact, uh, highly likely to have a successful outcome. Um, uh, Jeff, but, I thought that was a, there was an issue with the uterine rupture because of the scar. Is that that just not as much of an issue as it, it used to be? Well, it's it's not that it's changed over time, but but rather um, it's an event that, on the one hand, is fairly rare 
and on the other hand can be very, very serious in the rare cases when it occurs. And because of that serious nature, there is a set of requirements um, or, or at least strong recommendations for the circumstances that you have to have surrounding an attempt at having a vaginal delivery after a prior C-section. And included in that list is the ability to do an emergency C-section. So that means having somebody uh, capable of, having, of, of doing that C-section, either an obstetrician or a general surgeon or somebody else who's trained, um, having anesthesia available, having uh, you know, the appropriate support staff and so forth. Um, because of, of those guidelines, um, many hospitals, including most of the critical access hospitals you mentioned, simply can't meet those requirements. Um, if you are the only uh, general surgeon performing cesarean sections for a very large catchment area, uh, then you're doing well to provide those C-sections on an elective or semi-urgent basis. Um, your ability to be available on a moment's notice uh, to do one in an extreme emergency is, is almost non-existent. Uh, and therefore, the hospitals that you work with have to turn around and say, we're, we're not set up to do C-sections on a moment's notice. Therefore, it's not safe for you to try to deliver vaginally here because, you know, if you have that rare circumstance where you have a uterine rupture or another serious complication, uh, we can't help you. So either you're going to have a repeat C-section in our critical access hospital, whether that's what you wanted or not, uh, or your only other option is to transfer to one of the relatively few medical centers around Kentucky uh, that can offer that service. And those are really concentrated in uh, major cities such as Louisville or Lexington. So, so what's, what's the advantage uh, or the reason you would recommend a vaginal delivery uh, as opposed to just having another C-section? Great question. So there's no doubt that, that outcomes are much better when you can deliver vaginally as opposed to what I'll say is an artificial maneuver through a cesarean section. Uh, there are many cases where cesarean sections can be life-saving uh, for both the mother and the baby. There's no question that there are good indications for cesarean section. Um, but in Kentucky, we have 40, almost 50% in some areas of deliveries being done by cesarean section. And you don't have to be an obstetrician to realize that just doesn't make sense. Um, there, there's no way when a, a natural birthing process that usually has worked well throughout human existence, um, you know, is going to go wrong half the time. So clearly we're doing way more C-sections than are really needed to protect the life and health of, of mother and baby. Um, it is a, an operation. And I tell patients all the time, there's no such thing as minor surgery. Uh, it may be a routine surgery. Uh, but it's still surgery. And uh, as, as all of you know, uh, the only way not to have complications is not to get operated on. Uh, there's no question that the risk of problems after delivery are much higher if you have a cesarean section as opposed to vaginal delivery. The recovery time with a vaginal delivery is much, much faster. Um, and it's overall, in most cases, much safer for the mother and, and better overall outcomes and uh, back to normal faster if you can avoid a C-section. Well, let's uh, go ahead, Gene. How can we turn that around in Kentucky? <laughs> so that, that could probably be the topic of a whole other podcast. Um, but there, uh, there are um, a number of things that have been shown to be effective at, um, in, at lowering the cesarean section rate. 
Um, interestingly, there, there was a study done a number of years ago, back when I was a medical student at Northwestern, it was centered at Northwestern, that showed something as, as uh, minimal as requiring a brief second opinion before an elective or, or non-emergency C-section uh, dramatically lowered the cesarean section rate. Um, so th this didn't apply to people who needed a true emergency C-section, uh, but if an obstetrician thought that his, his or her patient needed one because labor wasn't progressing appropriately or some other reason that wasn't an emergency, the mere act of asking a colleague to look over the case, give a brief one or two minute opinion about, you know, is it appropriate to proceed or not, uh, that minimal oversight uh, dramatically reduced the, the likelihood of somebody having a C-section. Um, certainly giving better access to um, emergency capabilities, uh, have, having uh, a better uh, obstetrical workforce throughout the state, more obstetricians available in more hospitals or, or general surgeons or other physicians who can perform C-sections. All, all those things would certainly work to lower our C-section rate, uh, encourage more women to attempt vaginal delivery after a prior C-section. So there's really no one simple or straightforward approach. It's really multifactorial. Yeah, Jeff, let's. Uh, uh, most of our listeners are not medical people like like us, so they're when we're talking about uh, 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 maternal fetal mortality and that sort of thing, they really probably don't know, and I don't either, exactly what we're talking about in terms of you know how frequent how frequent is this? Uh, it's my understanding that our maternal fetal mortality is higher in this country. Uh, than it is in most of most other first world countries. So could you kind of uh, address uh, kind of a, a, an overview of that for some of our listeners who aren't medical or uh, or have a background in healthcare? Sure. And, and just to be really stark for our listeners, um, you know, we, we want to make sure we're comparing ourselves to, to our peers. So when you compare your risk of, of dying from a pregnancy-related problem, your risk of dying in the United States um, to other similar countries, uh, well-developed countries, the United States is the worst in the group. We are 10 times worse than the best in the group. Uh, we are twice as bad as the uh, next well-off country. Um, so it's really a very dramatic difference between the U.S. and our peer group and the rest of the world. And in fact, there are many uh, countries that are still in the developing world that have maternal mortality rates that are better than the United States. What, what does maternal mortality mean? Because that's kind of unheard of for most people these days. And you have to have some historical perspective. When my grandmother was born in 1907 uh, and delivered at home in, in Sellersburg, Indiana, as most people did back in those days, my great-grandmother would have had about a one in 100 chance of dying from a complication related to either pregnancy or childbirth. Uh, back in that era, uh, everybody knew of somebody who either died from pregnancy-related problems or they knew of somebody whose mother died giving birth. Um, it was really quite common. In this era, I, I would hazard a guess that probably nobody listening to this podcast or certainly very few people have ever had a personal encounter with that situation. Uh, and that really has been the success of modern obstetrics. 
um, the entire field of obstetrics was invented, if you will, uh, to deal with that risk of, of dying. And, and in many cases, uh, the severe morbidity, people who may get a problem that they didn't die from, but, but uh, you know, experience great hardship um, from either infection or bleeding complications or uh, many other things that have now fortunately become very rare. And we, we are uh, lucky that we live in an era that most people have never had any personal experience um, with those really bad outcomes. So that's the good news. What's the bad news? It's after decades and decades of, of profound success, year over year, the risk of dying in pregnancy getting lower and lower. Over the last 20 to 30 years, um, that trend has started to turn around. And while your risk of dying in pregnancy is still a tiny fraction of what it was 100 years ago, it's moving in the wrong direction. And that shouldn't be happening in an era when in general, everything else in medicine is getting better and better. Um, your risk of dying from a heart attack is less than ever. Your risk of being cured of cancer is better than ever. Uh, but your risk of, of dying related to pregnancy is getting worse, not better over the last 10 to 20 years. And we obviously don't want that trend to continue. The other thing is that even though it may be a very rare event, it is a horrible tragedy. Um, it's never good to, to lose a patient to a disease in medicine. Um, but when we talk about somebody who, who's died related to a pregnancy complication, we're often talking about somebody who's very young, not one of my older cancer patients. Um, they generally, um, in many cases, will leave behind other young children um, or a, a spouse or significant other. Um, these are particularly tragic, premature deaths. Um, so even though they're, they're not as common as some of the other problems we face, these are things we want to work very, very hard to present, prevent. And then lastly, for every case of somebody who dies of a certain complication, there's going to be many, many poor pe more people who suffer that complication. They may not die from it, um, but it's certainly going to, to present a lot of morbidity, a lot of discomfort. Um, a lot of expense and lost income and sometimes even permanent disability so that we know that by making efforts to prevent premature death related to pregnancy, uh, for every death we prevent, we're also keeping many, many more women from suffering from the same kind of complication. Well, what are the specifics of, of a maternal mortality? Is it postpartum hemorrhage? Is it preeclampsia? Is it the absence or lack of good prenatal care, or is it the, the health status of the, of, the, of the mother? Obviously, very important questions. Um, and I wish I could tell you that we knew definitively, but one of the barriers we've had to fixing this problem is until recently not really having sufficient data to answer that question. Um, we know that historically, there have been certain major causes of death related to pregnancy and childbirth. And typically they were infection or cardiovascular complications, such as having too much bleeding during, during delivery or developing certain conditions related to pregnancy, uh, such as what's known as preeclampsia or toxemia of pregnancy where very high blood pressures and uh, other ill effects can develop. Uh, and these are still common causes of maternal mortality, but we really have not tracked those events as well as we should 
in order to both gather the data that we need and then also figure out what to do about it. Um, I will say that in Kentucky, uh, fortunately, our legislature took the very positive step a couple of years ago um, at changing the way in which we collect this information. Um, in Kentucky, there is now a committee that does a confidential review of every case we can identify uh, that results in a maternal death. And that includes uh, anybody who was pregnant that dies for any reason uh, in the year following the end of their pregnancy. Now, obviously some of those are not gonna be related to the pregnancy and we're able to sort of uh, push those aside in terms of our analysis. Um, but in many cases we can find uh, not only the, the cause or often causes of a premature death related to the pregnancy, uh, but hopefully uh, put that data together and be able to formulate some recommendations about what we can be doing differently. Uh, we're just beginning to get some preliminary data in Kentucky from the, the changes the legislature made a few years ago. And interestingly, um, in Kentucky, the most common cause of premature death related to pregnancy does not seem to be from either hemorrhage or infection, uh, but it appears that it, it may be due to complications related to substance abuse. Um, that would not surprise anybody who's familiar with public health issues in Kentucky. Um, that would be very different from what has historically been the case and what other states have found looking at their data. Um, so it, it's very important that we collect this information and then we can begin to formulate plans for what to do about it. Wow, that's really interesting and that's really scary. Now, are there ethnic uh, racial uh, differences that you can uh, explain to us or that are recognized with the maternal mortality uh, issue? Right, so again, we're limited by not having quite as much data or high quality data as no, we'd I understand. like. I understand. Having said yeah. that, um, as, as you look at state after state, there seems to be a very strong association between certain racial or ethnic backgrounds in your risk of, of dying either due to pregnancy or childbirth. Um, we see that to some degree here in Kentucky. It is more pronounced in some states than others. Uh, it's probably necessary to put a lot of states together to be able to look at that data because fortunately it's still a rare event. Um, but it's fairly clear from the data that's available that um, if you are African-American in particular, um, your risk of, of dying from a pregnancy-related complication is substantially higher. Um, what we are still figuring out is what are the factors that go into that? Um, is it related to poverty? Is it related to lack of access to health care? Is it related to racial biases in how the health approaches patients? Um, it may very well be a combination of many of these things. So until we get better data, um, it, it's, at this point, we can only speculate as, as to what the specific causes are, and more importantly, how do we address them? What about uh, neonatal deaths? Why are, why are they so high in Kentucky? And are we comparing apples to apples when we look at other countries, particularly third world countries? Well, there, there are different measures. Uh, so for example, uh, one can define a, a neonatal or newborn death 
um, as death immediately after delivery or in the first 28 days after delivery or the first month after delivery um, or neonatal and infant deaths in the first year after delivery. So you are right, different healthcare systems, different states, different countries will sometimes measure things differently. And we do have to take that into account as we're comparing outcomes in say Kentucky and comparing them to other states or the rest of the US or the rest of the world. But within that limitation, it's again pretty clear that outcomes for newborns and infants in the United States, including in Kentucky, are not nearly as good as they should be. We are way behind other well-developed countries. And in fact, uh, behind many countries that have far fewer resources than we do. So you can argue about, is the problem really bad or really, really bad? Uh, but there's no, no question that um, our neonatal and infant mortality rates are far, far higher than should be acceptable. When you go and look at the causes, uh, the leading cause of neo or leading causes, I should say, of, of newborn mortality um, are really obstetrical. Um, they're related to things such as delivering prematurely uh, and having an infant who's born too early to survive, or infection that occurs in the mother during pregnancy that affects the infant. So while there's many reasons that you, you may lose a, a newborn or an infant, um, the most common of those, particularly the ones that are preventable, things we can intervene on, um, they're really obstetrical in nature. Now, are they, do, you, do you know whether the uh, maternal and, and uh, infant uh, morbidity and mortality, is it higher in the Medicaid population than it is in the general population, or is that not an issue? Um, you know, I, I can't tell you right off the top of my head if there's data looking very specifically at that, um, but I would not be surprised um, if, in fact, you did see a, a higher uh, neonatal mortality rate. And I say that because when, when you look at the population that is more likely to either have Medicaid or still some uninsured mothers, unfortunately, uh, versus uh, individuals who have commercial insurance, typically through employment, um, then the, the factors that we know affect um, neonatal mortality and maternal mortality tend to go along with the Medicaid population. So statistically speaking, if you have Medicaid, you're more likely to live in a neighborhood where you may have difficulty accessing good nutrition, where there may be higher rates of gun violence, um, where there's, uh, you're more likely to either smoke or to be around smokers. Uh, again, there's you know, many factors like this that it's not necessarily the being on Medicaid part, it's all the things that are associated with the fact that um, you are on Medicaid. Yeah, I'm going to ask you one more follow-up question and I'll let Jane have a shot at you. But if, so uh, is there any data that you're aware of that can compare the um, uh, neonatal uh, maternal mortality morbidity in states that had Medicare expansion, as opposed to states that didn't expand Medicare, uh, Medicaid, I'm sorry, right. not Medicare, Medicaid. Right, so that, that's certainly a very interesting question because when we went through Medicaid expansion, um, it was an idea that sounded good, 
Uh, we all expect it's going to improve outcomes, but as, as physicians, we like to see the data. We like to see the proof. Because it's a relatively recent phenomenon, um, we, we only you know, saw the, the beginning of improved access uh, to Medicaid a few years ago. Not every state got on board the first day that they could have. Um, and it often takes several years to see the downstream effects. Uh, so, for example, just because someone has access to Medicaid uh, in, in a new way, that doesn't mean everybody's going to run out and take advantage of it on day one. So it may take a while to see these effects. Having said all that, there is at least one study that's been published that looks at some preliminary information saying how did, how did moms used to do before the Medicaid expansion, and then how are they doing now in the states that expanded Medicaid versus the states that didn't expand Medicaid. Um, and a couple of interesting things that, that have come out of that, and again, I wanna caution, this is one study and it's preliminary data, but there is certainly a trend uh, showing improved uh, outcomes in mothers and babies uh, in states that expanded Medicaid. Um, interestingly, it, when you looked at where were you seeing improvements, for example, were you seeing complications right at delivery, or were you seeing fewer deaths from complications two, three, six months later? The trend was towards an improvement later on in pregnancy. Uh, so that suggests, for example, that women who used to die from complications that developed more than a few days or weeks after pregnancy um, might be having a lower risk of dying because of improved access to healthcare. Uh, one good example of that would be uh, death from suicide due to postpartum depression. Uh, that is an example of a maternal death uh, that's not going to show up in the first few days after delivery. Um, it may be remote from delivery, but nonetheless, it's an important problem. It's a common problem. And it's one that we know that with proper intervention, we can prevent suicide or attempted suicide um, from postpartum depression. So there, there is some evolving evidence that the Medicaid expansion is in fact having the desired effect. Do, do we know what percentage of deliveries are, are Medicaid uh, in the state of Kentucky? It's approximately half. And while it varies state by state, um, we, we see that around the country in the neighborhood of you know, 50%, give or take a little bit, uh, are Medicaid. I want to skip to another subject. Uh, in uh, recent years, we've had some hospitals uh, who are hiring obstetricians, kind of like hospitalists. They, uh, they work shifts. They work 12-hour uh, shifts and deliver babies. Uh, they don't see the patient pre-delivery or post-delivery. And... Uh, it's, uh, I think, a way of, uh, of uh, getting away, having be on call so much. And what do, you, what do you think of that idea? I know of two hospitals not very far from me that, that's doing that. Yeah, so it, it's a general trend in all areas of medicine, whether it's uh, internists who are rounding on hospitalized patients or obstetricians taking care of patients in the hospital, uh, even in the intensive care unit. Um, where you're, you're more likely to be cared for um, somebody who's dedicated to the, the ICU patients. 
Um, like, like every new change, it has both its positives and its negatives. Um, I don't think that we have as good a data on outcomes with um, obstetricians working full-time in labor and delivery that we have in some other areas. Um, I think you can extrapolate a little bit from certain other areas in medicine. For example, in the intensive care unit, um, I imagine most of us on, on this program today uh, for most of our careers, if we had a patient in the intensive care unit, uh, we as their surgeon would follow that patient. Uh, we, we knew them best. We knew what went on in surgery. Uh, we had the, um, the best patient relationship, having met them before they got critically ill. Uh, but one downside is that you cannot be everywhere at once. And uh, I, I cannot, for example, be in the operating room and then at the same time be at the bedside in the ICU taking care of an ill patient minute to minute. Um, as, as the concept of an intensivist involved, as we had uh, intensive care physicians who began to care for patients full-time in the ICU, um, the data on outcomes became very clear. Uh, patients who were treated in ICUs, where there was a full-time physician in intensive care medicine uh, in that ICU 24-7, uh, taking care of patients minute to minute, um, those patients did far better than critically ill patients treated in the traditional model. Uh, and in this day and age, while I, I certainly wouldn't give up participating in the care of one of my patients in the ICU, uh, I know that they're gonna have a better chance of a successful outcome if they are at least co-managed with somebody who's physically present in that ICU 24 hours a day. So do you see that same kind of improvement with an obstetrician who's in labor and delivery 24 hours a day I don't think we have data on that that's, that's quite as, as strong, uh, but I can tell you anecdotally, um, there are going to be situations where having an obstetrician physically present in labor and delivery, able to react in an, in an emergency on a moment's notice uh, is always going to give you a better outcome than an obstetrician who's five or 10 or 30 minutes away. Um, so there, there's certainly the potential for improved care. Now, the downside is that because it's not one physician managing the patient, but rather people working in shifts, then as a patient, you are gonna have multiple physicians taking care of you. And every time somebody switches, when you get a new physician, um, there has to be really good transfer of information. Um, if you don't have good systems in place to make sure that you can have that smooth transition from one doctor to the next, then it's always possible that critical information might not be passed on to the next treating physician. Something important might get lost in the shuffle or fall through the cracks. And then you've got the potential for something bad happening to the patient. It might not have happened if they were still being taken care of by one physician. You know, so, yeah. as a surgeon, I never had any trouble um, not managing the intensive care issues simply because it became so complex and so different from whatever I was doing. I mean, even, even when I just got out of my training, uh, and you've got high-risk pregnancy uh, obstetricians, and, and I, you know, I, I'm just wondering, I, you know, I, I kind of, I'm not sure what Gene's thoughts about that are, but I, I, I'm still trying to figure out how that becomes a positive as opposed to 
having a group of physicians who work with each other and somebody's on call in the same practice as opposed to having a, a, a an obstetrician hospitalist, I guess, which is what 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 they are. You just patient goes into the hospital and somebody delivers the baby uh, who's never seen that individual before. Uh, I, I you know I, there's got to be issues. I can't imagine. Uh, yeah, years ago, I I I, I, I knew a group of surgeons in a, another town or a city <laughs> I won't mention who would. Um, schedule different things. Um, and then whoever was on call would go do the surgery. They, they didn't see the patient. I've never done that. I've never actually operated on a patient that I hadn't seen before, unless I was called into the operating room for, you know, some emergency or something. But these guys had the, they had the, the, the things were scheduled and somebody came on and they were, they were a subspecialty group. They were neurosurgeons and they just did the case because that was on that day. And, and, and as opposed to, you know, having my patients scheduled on Friday morning from 7 a.m. until two in the afternoon or something like that. So uh, I don't know, just- I uh, think I, that's I, a really bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we all agree there. Well, I do too. So. <laughs> uh, well. I, it really speaks to, you know, we're, what's the difference between a surgeon and a, and a technician? Yeah, well, yeah. Um, uh, you know, we, we've all said we can teach lots of people to operate the way we do, but that's not being a doctor. Um, you know, there, there is the art of medicine. There's the, the physician-patient relationship. Uh, there's our ability to explain things to the patient, to uh, put their mind at ease and make them comfortable and, and to set them up for a good recovery. And you're right, you lose all that if, if you just do things in a shift mentality. And fortunately, I think that's the exception, not the rule. Um, one of the, the things that I think has worked well is a hybrid approach where for, for patients who do have a relationship with a private obstetrician or a small group of obstetricians, practicing out of a facility where on the one hand, you know there's an obstetrician on labor and delivery 24-7 to handle an emergency at a moment's notice, but at the same time, you're still being primarily cared for by the, the this obstetrician or the group that you've established care with. That's a nice hybrid model. Um, so if, if I'm an obstetrician and, and uh, you know, my patient shows up in labor and delivery and everything is going well, um, I can plan to be there on time and do the actual delivery. Uh, at the same time, if one of my patients has to go to the hospital via 911 for an emergency, uh, maybe gets there before I do, uh, it's comforting to know that I have a colleague there ready to take over at a moment's notice until I get there and do whatever needs to be done for my patient. Okay, Gene, let me ask you a question about these hospitals near you that, that have set this, uh, this uh, obstetrician hospitalist system up. Was this, who, who's the driving force behind that? Do you know? I, I think it's the doctors and the you know. having time off. Yeah. Okay. Not uh, there's nobody yeah. who wants to be uh, on call 24/7 anymore. Uh, one of my best friends uh, who delivered both of my children, uh, he uh, was on call constantly, and uh, he did a good job. And uh, but uh, he essentially burned himself out. Well, the, the practices that I'm aware of in Louisville, and this has been a while, so maybe it's changed, is there were, there'd be a group of 10, right. 5, 6, 3, a number of people, 
and they wouldn't all be on call all the time, but there's somebody would be on, if they had five people in the group, you were on call one every five nights, but you knew the, the information about the patient was within the practice and you didn't right. just go in there. Somebody just didn't show up. You know, you knew it was Charlie's, you know, patient and then you could get the chart or, or you know, look on, look it up on the computer and you had all this information. I, and I guess the hospitalist, OB can do it as well. I, I, I don't know. I just, I right. just don't see how this works well. Yeah, even before the current trend, there have been a number of groups that were really doing that model for a number of years. So if you had a group of four or five or six obstetricians, uh, they might have a system where one of them would be the person in the hospital for the day. Yeah. And, and they were, their primary responsibility was to take care of everybody who came into the hospital, certainly to be there for any emergencies. Um, and then often they would have the next day off, recover a little bit, uh, and then people would, would rotate through that. So there's a number of models. There are some groups where the obstetricians will decide that um, they'll try and do their own uh, patients' deliveries during the day or when they're available. Uh, but again, to avoid burnout, um, most of their patients, if they wind up needing care in the middle of the night or on weekends, will often be uh, taken care of by a partner. Uh, many of these groups will uh, try to get their patients to meet their partners during the course of their pregnancy. So when they come in for uh, routine visits, um, they, they might be introduced to one of the partners they might be seeing in the middle of the night, that sort of thing. There, there are many models. It, it really uh, works differently from group to group. There's no question it's evolving. Um, when I was in medical school, my, my uh, med school mentor was a solo obstetrician. Uh, while he had people he would sometimes sign out to, um, he, he really anticipated doing almost all the deliveries by himself, uh, got up in the middle of the night or on weekends to do every delivery. Um, and that was sort of the way things were done. But uh, it, it did contribute to some degree to physician burnout. And uh, frankly, the, the level of expectation for quality of care and for interventions is uh, really different today than it, it was 30 years ago. So um, I, I think the fact that it's evolving is inescapable and we, we can talk about it being good or bad, but the reality is that it's happening. Another interesting thing is happen in intensive care. That's kind of the opposite direction. I, uh, I know three, uh, nurse practitioners who now cover intensive care units by themselves, uh, and to do most of the work, particularly at night. Uh, of course, they have someone to call, but uh, it seems like uh, we're, uh, we've gone one direction <laughs> and now we're going in another direction. Uh, right. uh, one of the nurses I, I met on a medical mission trip and she met, worked at Sloan Kettering, the famous uh, uh, cancer hospital in uh, New York City, and she covered the ICU uh, uh, at night by herself and the residents weren't even involved. Right. But anyway, that's a. Uh, uh, we, we've gotten off the subject. I have some other OB, uh, uh, GYN well, questions. Go ahead. I've got, I want to move us into something else in a little bit, but you, you right. fire away uh, for a bit there. It's, it's very common. I, uh, I see women who have, um, gone to their family doctor and, uh, for a physical and, uh, they want a pap smear and the family doctor says, Oh, you got to go see your OBGYN. Now, uh, is is 
why is it that uh, primary care physicians don't seem to be able to do pelvic exams anymore? Well, I think every physician uh, needs to develop a um, sort of an envelope of what they're comfortable with. And there's, there's pretty good information that for most things in medicine, there's a certain volume that you have to do in order to really maintain uh, good quality skills. Uh, because if you're going to do a pap smear uh, or some of the other uh, newer improved screening that we do these days, um, you want to make sure that that patient is getting good quality care, that they get the right screening test, that it's collected properly, that it's interpreted properly. So in an ideal world, um, a, a primary care physician, an internist or a, a family physician um, or a, a, pediat a pediatrician working in adolescent medicine um, should all be able to do things like cervical cancer screening. Uh, at the same time, um, if you have an internist who says, you know, I, I usually uh, take care of a population that doesn't need cervical cancer screening very often, I would only be doing it, you know, once in a blue moon, as they say, um, I'm really not comfortable with my ability to either do the testing or interpret the results. Uh, you as a patient are really going to be better off if you see somebody who's more skilled in that area then I think kudos to the, the physician who's able to recognize their limitations and say, I'm not gonna try and do everything for everybody. Uh, obviously there's a balance. You know, we, we want our patients to uh, get as much uh, quality care as they can with as little effort or as little visits as necessary. And I do think that's where primary care physicians uh, come into play. Um, your ability to have one primary physician who can treat bladder infections, prescribe birth control, do cervical cancer screening, do breast cancer screening, you know, all of these things without you having to run from clinic to clinic or physician to physician means the patient is more likely to get the care that they should get. Uh, but at the same time, you, you don't wanna push physicians to do something that they as an individual might not feel comfortable with. What about midwives? Can they bridge some of these uh, problems in OB and GYN? Yeah, absolutely. Um, really, the, the role of an obstetrician is to serve as a consultant in women's reproductive health care. Uh, I mentioned that the field was really started uh, not to deliver babies, um, although that, that's sort of the fun part of what we do, and that's what many people think of as, in terms of obstetrics. But really, the whole role of the field uh, is to uh, keep women healthy uh, and to prevent or treat problems when they, they do develop. Um, you do not need an, uh, somebody as skilled as an obstetrician to do things as simple as prescribe birth control or, or do a routine vaginal delivery. Um, those kind of things can certainly be undertaken by non-obstetricians. And frankly, if we're gonna deliver high quality care in this country to everybody who should be getting it, um, it's going to need to be undertaken by people other than obstetricians. Okay, Mike. All right. Well, let's let's. We're still on the on the um, sort of healthcare uh, overall issue. I'd like to get some thoughts uh, from you about Planned Parenthood. Um, they see it seems to be under attack in a lot of different places. So there's issues of contraception, cancer screening, and abortion. So um, why don't I just open up that envelope and let you start wherever you want to start, and then we'll 
we'll we'll we'll come in whatever whenever we need have some more information or need some more information about any one of those specific issues right um so um i i'm not affiliated with planned parenthood i i'm not on their their board or anything no, I'm i understand I uh, but I, as, as an individual i can tell you that um, their, their mission is really to do uh, great work in our population. Um, there is a strong association between women having the choice over uh, reproductive outcomes, uh, when to become pregnant, when not to become pregnant, uh, strong correlation between that ability and overall health for both mothers and children. Um, there is very good evidence that being able to um, optimize uh, the number of children, uh, optimize time between pregnancies, not having them too close together, are again associated with much better outcomes for moms and kids and well into life. Um, avoiding problems related to pregnancy and delivery in early childhood uh, can have lifelong positive implications for people in terms of how they do in school, how they, they do in society, um, so it, it's really hard to overstate uh, the potential good work that, that Planned Parenthood can do. Um, part of those reproductive services included include terminating uh, pregnancies for a variety of reasons, and that's why they uh, have become controversial in society. Uh, but I think it's important to know that the vast majority of the work that goes on at Planned Parenthood uh, has nothing to do with pregnancy termination. And in fact, uh, almost all the activities are really geared towards minimizing the need to be in a circumstance where you would consider a pregnancy termination. So improving uh, sexual education in general, uh, improving access to contraception, um, making sure that uh, when women do become pregnant and they offer free pregnancy testing, for example, um, that those women have access to immediate obstetrical care, uh, that they start on things like prenatal vitamins right away. Um, all of these things are, are very beneficial effects um, and are, are true regardless of one's uh, feelings regarding uh, pregnancy termination. Um, so to, to paint Planned Parenthood with a broad brush related to one of its minor activities uh, is really doing a disservice to women in this country. Oh, I absolutely agree. That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it because I mean we've got some listeners out there and in, in, a, in a Kentucky, which is a, a fairly conservative state, it's it's uh, it's I think worrisome to see how much uh, uh, Planned Parenthood is under attack in 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 and around the more conservative parts of this country. Uh, and also, do, they also do uh, a fair amount of cancer screening. I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure I know all the details of that, and I'm not sure if it's fair to ask you that question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. No. And if, you, if you're not comfortable with it, you can tell us and we'll move on to something else. No, it's, it's a great point. Uh, cervical cancer screening is really a very important part of women's health care and preventive medicine in particular. Um, it, as you go around the world, cervical cancer is one of the most common cancers that women come down with, and it's one of the leading causes of cancer death around the world. Uh, it is fortunately fairly rare in this country. Um, I, I would hazard again that most of our listeners today probably do not know of anybody who's had a true case of cervical cancer. 
they may have known somebody who had an abnormal pap smear and a precancerous change, but actually having uh, you know, life-threatening cervical cancer uh, has become very rare, and that is due to very successful cancer screening in this country. The vast majority of patients that I see with a life-threatening cervical cancer have not had any cervical cancer screening in the last few years. So it's really not about do we have good screening available or do we have good treatments? Um, our gap, our reason why I have to take care of those patients is simply lack of access to care. Uh, either people don't have insurance coverage or they don't have access to the care or they don't have time off from work to go for care. There's a whole host of reasons why people might not take advantage of that screening that's available. Uh, but organizations like Planned Parenthood uh, help fill in that gap. For many women, it may be the only realistic way that they have access to cervical cancer screening. And it's, it's life-saving. Uh, and I, I will mention along with cervical cancer screening, our paradigm today is really prevention uh, using vaccination against the HPV virus that causes cervical cancer. So again, Planned Parenthood uh, for many young women and teenagers uh, is the only realistic opportunity they have to have that vaccination that's gonna keep them from being in my office five or 10 years from now. Okay, Jeff, we're getting down to the last five minutes. So a uh, couple of... We, we need to mention one okay, thing. That Louisville <laughs> and the University of Louisville needs to be proud that uh, to, to some of the early work and proving that pap smears were worthwhile was done by Dr. Lehman Gray Sr. and uh, Dr. Christofferson, the chairman of pathology at UofL, and they did some of the original work. And we need to be proud of that. Yeah, they they were both really interesting people as well. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> so, uh, Jeff, let me. Let, we're going to switch horses a little bit, and I, I, I this, uh, this may or may not be a fair question, but I'm going to answer it. Ask it anyway, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to. As you know, this is a, this this program is sponsored by single payer. Uh, radio. We are people. We are. We are. Um, the purpose is, hopefully, that at some point in time we will have a better healthcare delivery system in this country than we have today. <clears throat> so my question to you, and again, it's a very broad, broad bent or broad scope kind of question. If you could sort of put on your look down the road hat, and we we've got our current healthcare delivery system. We have uh, discussions about something called a public option, which is not exactly clear what it, that might be. Medicare for people 40, 50, say, there's a lot of different op possibilities or a single payer system. And even that is not very clear exactly what that would be because all of this, all of these options uh, would, would be the result of political negotiations and we all know where that can lead. So if we were to change our healthcare delivery system to one of those other options, some, a public option, which would basically be insurance, another form of insurance, which would be uh, run by the government and as as a as an op, another option, as opposed to uh, for younger people, as opposed to either Medicaid 
or uh, all of the for-profit insurance uh, availabilities, or a single-payer system, which would be, I guess, something you know, like what they've got up in Canada. Again, I, I, I but can you do you have some thoughts about how um, women's health would change with either of those? Uh, different healthcare delivery systems? Sure, so the, the problems that we've discussed today related to uh, women's healthcare and particularly access to good high quality care, yeah. uh, they're not restricted to women's health. There may be some unique aspects like things like cervical cancer screening, um, but the issues are the same, whether we're talking about prevention of heart disease or cancer therapy, um, or management of joint replacement, um, all, all of the, you know, the, the issues around access to care and quality care, receiving high quality care versus low quality care, uh, basically the same issues. Um, the one thing that I'm fairly confident stating is that lack of change, continuing with our current system, is simply not an option. Uh, not only is it unconscionable, that we spend as much money per person as we do in this country uh, and get such poor outcomes relative to other countries. But frankly, as a country, economically, we simply cannot continue on that same trajectory. Um, most people simply don't appreciate that this country is spending almost $1 out of every five on healthcare. Uh, many of us don't feel that because if we get insurance through our employer, or perhaps you have Medicare or Medicaid, um, you're not paying that money straight out of your wallet to the hospital or the doctor, uh, but you are paying it, whether it's in taxes or whether it's less money you get in salary, uh, almost one out of every $5 that, that you make is going to pay for healthcare. And if you ask people, um, are you satisfied with the way that you're getting your healthcare. Um, you know, most people I, I think are happy with their doctor. There's, there's good data on that. But if you ask them, do you like the system? Do you like having to negotiate the pre-approval process? Uh, do you like having to get one drug switched for another by your insurance company? Uh, do you like having to wait in line for things? Uh, and, and frankly, try getting a new primary care physician in this town. And that's typical around the country. Jeff, we're oh. about we're about we're about to hit the wall here. Sure. One, so more, get... one more quick comment that Gene has 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 taught us that uh, for every that dollar that you that dollar that's being spent on health care, one third of that dollar actually isn't going to health care. It's going to something else. Listen, thank you very much. You're great. We this was a good program. I think the listeners are going to learn a lot about um, health, uh, uh, women's health issues, especially Mark is about to pull the plug on us. Over here. <laughs> no, Jeff, thank you very much. This is a great program. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you again for having me. Yes. Uh, thanks. Great questions and great information, doctor. For more information about single payer healthcare, you can go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. Have a good week, everyone. Thank you.